Welcome to the Quantum Growth Podcast, empowering financial advisors to build practices for the 21st century by providing insights and interviews on leadership, strategy, and practice management. Now here is your host, Barron's Hall of Fame advisor, Jonathan Cutton. Welcome to another episode of Quantum Growth for Financial Advisors. Happy holidays. Uh, We have a treat for you today. Today, uh, we are going back in history over the last uh, year or so and taking some of our favorite clips from our amazing speakers uh, who've enlightened us with nuggets of wisdom. So uh, stay tuned and listen to some short clips that uh, were some of the most impactful moments in the quantum growth for financial advisors podcast hope you enjoy it i like what you said there about like the vision i mean the the great leaders can help others see where it's going get others excited about where this is going and really develop a culture where you know everyone is pushing together this up the mountain or the stairs wherever you're looking to take your your practice and uh, that's that's really an important skill to get others on board and, and see. You know, to me, that's really a, a key role at the top. I think a gap that that we see a lot of times in this, you know, just, just shifting this role. Unfortunately, there's a lot of dictatorships out there, and uh, look, dictatorships have not worked in societies, and they don't work in uh, businesses either. And um, I, I think in stemming, just just tying this into. What is it like to lead other people? I'd say one of the, the, the other challenges that, that goes along with this is knowing what type of leader you need to be with different people, with dis- different situations, or depending on different you know, roles or tasks that somebody has. So for example, um, you know, Cut Wealth and, and my firm, we use uh, situational leadership often, which, which I know you've talked about in podcast, John. Um, it's a way to know how to lead somebody in different occasions. So look, if you have an advisor in your team that's proficient, they probably don't need a lot of micromanaging, right? They probably don't need a lot of dictating. They probably just need their fire fan and, and congratulating for doing an amazing job and how can you help them? Um, for people that are more novice, I think we miss the, they probably need to be shown more stuff and someone needs to invest a lot of time into them to show them stuff. And uh, a lot of firms, you know, miss that gap. And there's kind of a point where people have been shown stuff that they're not quite the, you know, the confident expert they are. They probably need some coaching and coaching skills are becoming one of the bigger, you know, leader managerial skills to really help people through. And it's a, a different than telling or managing that go do X, Y, Z. It's really leading people along to you know, decide on, on what their behaviors will be or what they'll do and how they'll respond to things. And so it, it's, it's sort of in alignment with that, you know, being that leader that can help people see where this is going and help them follow and be excited about it and want to run up the hill with them. You know, that's probably a, 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 a big gap that, that we see. It's another skill that no one's ever learned. Right, just to, how to how to coach someone and how to you know lead someone successful to be even more successful. It's an interesting one. So I I think that that's you know just just to really pull the curtain back on what is it like to be a leader. What are what are some of the things? It's these these advisors, these people in your team become your clients, 
And just like maybe a lot of you have, have focused on, you know, again, retail clients during your career, they're your clients and what do they need? They don't need investment products. They don't need financial planning advice that's going to get them to where they want to go. These advisors need different things. They need to be shown what to do. They need to be coached. They need to be, uh, they're, they're fire fanned if they're really proficient. And the, the firms that can do this are the ones that keep them around and they can build and they can scale. The ones that have gaps in any of those areas, that, that's where we see a revolving door and it, it just constantly hitting a ceiling of, of, of people, you know, coming in, this isn't good for me. I'm going to go somewhere else. You know, it's such a fail to invest a lot of time and money into somebody and then have them leave. I, I think you said it best. You've got to expect there's going to be a multi-year investment to get a long-term return on bringing in that first advisor. And that's the really when people are standing on that cliff, thinking about making that big first investment. This is exactly what, what holds people back. I'd say it's probably the biggest reason people don't go down the um ensemble the enterprise path is is the, just the fear of of making that investment or maybe they're not in a, a financial place to make that investment but it is it takes time to turn a, a return now there are some rare occasions where it happens for example if you have a lot of opportunities with clients you just have too many clients you're not getting to and you get somebody in there that maybe gets you freer and you create a lot more with the people with your top people who have more assets who have more revenue you do more with them sure there's some times that i've seen people generate a return on investment in, in as early as a year because they have the opportunity sitting there um or they can invest in somebody to help go after some of these opportunities and pay for themselves but that's it's it's rare I mean, typically you're going to be bringing somebody in, you're going to be developing them, and it's going to take a while before they can manage enough for the firm or take enough off your plate to do even more with the top people. It just, it, it takes time. And, and really, you know, as, as you talked about that amazing, you know, leader, John, I mean, suddenly this shift in clients being your clients, you know, retail, financial planning, investment clients, you know, the shift starts to become the advisors are now your clients. And it is that care. And eventually, you know, like John Cutton, it might be that I've got a lot of advisors on the team and, and they're my clients instead of the retail clients. But that's a hard shift too. that, you know, now it's really caring for them and it's investing enough time in them. Uh, I find that busy, um, you know, solo practitioners that make this leap, they're so overwhelmed and drowning. They, they, they struggle to make the time to invest in perhaps their most important client, which is this new advisor that they brought on. Whether they have experience or not, they need some development. They need some time. They need to learn your ways and, and how you do it. And even if they know what to do, they might need some coaching. They might need just their, their fire fanned a little bit to help them you know, build the confidence or help them do what they need to do to be successful. Yep. That's a that's a, a a big one there, but I would say the more investment is made into the the next team member, that next advisor, that is is very much in alignment with the return that you can generate. So just bringing somebody in isn't the instant fix, but bringing them in, investing time into them, developing them, that can influence how quickly you generate a return. And then going back to that, that's really the, the future skills. If you're going down this path, you need to develop. And the more you do of that, it, again, it leads to this happening much, much quicker and, and being you know, more profitable and being in a position that, okay, now we can bring in that second person 
and, and maintain profitability and not go upside down because yeah. it can uh, it, it can sting, especially you're like this, which you brought up in the previous two um, podcasts in the series, John, that uh, uh, you make a big investment in a year like this where the market's down. Right. I mean, that can like doubly sting. As I was saying, Gino realized that all the issues that companies have and entrepreneurial companies have fell into one of six key buckets. And to the extent that EOS as a company can help make these organizations stronger in all of these, there is success. So the first component is what we call vision. And that simply means getting everybody in an organization top to bottom, rowing in the same direction. They know what the organization does, what its core focus is, what its core values are, everybody rowing in the same direction. That's vision. The second one, second component is the people component. This means having the right people in the right seats. And, and what that means is you need both. You can have a person in your organization or several who you really love because they embody the core values of your business. But if they don't perform well in their job, they're a right person in the wrong seat. And that holds the company back. And you can also have the reverse problem where you have somebody who's a great producer and you know they, they go out and they, they make it rain and they bring in new accounts and, and so on, but they violate all the cultural norms and they drive the client service people crazy and they don't adhere to process and they don't much care about um, how anybody feels about it. We've all met people like that. Well, that's a wrong person in the right seat. And until you have all right people in the right seats, no one will have enough time to do their jobs the way they should. It's just interference and static electricity top to bottom in the organization. So that's the people component, get the right people in the right seats. Then there's the data component. And this is all about running the business with numbers, with information, instead of emotions and opinion. And I work with many financial advisors to implement the EOS. And one of the first things that we do in EOS implementation is create a scorecard. And it, and it always surprises me, but maybe not anymore, that when we first start this process, there's not a lot of tracking of really important leading indicators, like how many new scenes did they have that week? Um, how many trading errors occurred? Uh, what was the uh, uh, meeting prep completion rate in terms of having everything right, exactly right on the first pass? How many referrals were received that week? How many were requested? How many COI meetings did you have that week? These are all things that oftentimes are just sort of like, yeah, I think I'm doing it. I think we're hitting those numbers, but we're not tracking it on a weekly basis. So that's the data component. The next component is what we call the issues component. And the issues component is about solving issues as they arise through a methodology. So instead of having the same issue next year as you have right now, how do you avoid that? Well, you avoid it is you have a methodology to solve issues where instead of people getting in a room and kind of you know all throwing solutions at each other and not even getting to the root cause of issues, we have a process called IDS, which is identify, discuss, and solve. Identify means what's the root cause of this issue? Not the symptom, but dig down to the root cause. Then once we have root causes exposed, we can discuss it, discuss them. 
Once we have that, we can solve. And solve means what's the to-do or several to-dos that are going to solve this issue, hopefully forever, by next week's leadership team meeting or departmental team meeting. So that's the issues component. Then we have the process component. And this means having critical core processes documented and followed by everyone. So, you know, I gave you the example before of a uh, uh, of an advisor who goes out and hustles up some some new account. That's great. And now what we have to do? Well, we we have to onboard them as a new client. And let's say that this advisor came from another firm and they were hired away and they have their way of doing things and they do it and uh, they just throw it over the wall to the client service people and the operations people not adhering to the way things are usually done. Very disruptive. So what you want to have is know what your core processes are for client onboarding, for client reviews, for marketing, um, for uh, investment operations, for insurance operations, if you do that, for, for all the things that are core. And then documenting them in a simple way. We call it a 20-80 approach. Document the 20% of a process that gives you 80% of the way there so that smart people know where the guardrails are. So that's the process component. And then there's the last one that we call the traction component, which really is synonymous with execution. And the, the tools and principles there are, number one, rocks, like you mentioned. Rocks are simply 90-day goals. What we want is every company, every entrepreneurial company living in a 90-day world. If you solve things 90 days at a time and focus on objectives 90 days at a time, that's about the farther, farthest reaches of a human attention span in a business. So living in a 90-day world by creating and executing a small number of quarterly rocks, which are just objectives and goals. And the second part of that is having very formatted, very strong weekly leadership team meetings that we call a level 10 meeting. And I won't go into the details at this moment, but this meeting is focused on, unlike most meetings, which are focused on reporting, here's what I did last week, boss, here's what I'm going to do this week, here's what they said, here's what I said, really boring and doesn't move the needle. Level 10 meeting focuses on a little bit of reporting, but then an hour have a 90-minute meeting on issue solving, taking the issues list, solving them, teeing them up, knocking them down for the greater good of the business. So those are the six key components of EOS that we train entrepreneurial companies and advisory firms to engage in. The financial advisor can absolutely ask if they can have a small column in the newsletter. Hmm. Um, that's a way to market position yourself. Um, some of our attorneys go ahead and they have what we call partners and partnership listings on their website. If you're okay with having another person, you know, within your industry on the directory, that's something that you can do. The biggest thing is they don't ask. And you have to brainstorm together. If you have an idea of how it might benefit you, then tap into that. Go ahead and ask them. If you're a financial advisor and you have a really good relationship with an estate planning attorney, but you're just not feeling the reciprocation because they're not giving you that referral, right? You're, you're not, you feel like you're not getting that. Go and ask. What's the most they can say is no, but ask to be in an article if they're doing e-blasts or 
quarterly printed newsletters to their members, asked to put pieces of collateral within their waiting room, asked to be put as a, a preferred member or a trusted partner on their website, asked to put the business cards within, um, within the, the conference room of where they're meeting with their members. The other thing that we do um, for our members to market to the estate planning or to market to the financial industry, you can absolutely do in return. And that is a nice piece of collateral um, that we design and give to our members to pass along to the financial industry that it's a nice brochure and it gives a quick, this is who we are, directions to my office, contact information, a little bit more Nothing says that you can't do the same. It all just comes down to asking. Um, and the other thing is, is uh, get creative in terms of step outside of your comfort zone with just the presentations and the dinners. Uh, can you do a joint TV commercial? Can you go on a local radio sh show together and talk about something that pertains to both of your industries? You know, you can absolutely go um, you know, one of one thing that's really interesting with our membership is a lot of them have radio shows. I know we're doing podcasts and that's yep, the way yep. the world is going, but a lot of them are are enjoying news talk radio shows and they're bringing on guests. What a great opportunity to partner and bring a common topic and talk about it, right? Um, another thing that we do for our members is we um, offer... Uh, CE classes for the financial industry and for social workers. Mm. Maybe that's something you want to look into. It's a process. New York state is probably the worst state to get CE approved, but there's other things that you can do to create that level of partnership and a win-win. The buyers were generally more tech savvy than sellers. Go figure. You know, they were in their, you know, mid to late 40s. They use technology in their practice as it is now. Sellers, on the other hand, historically have been the bottleneck on that. You may have amazing plans and experience running a remote office. I mean, frankly, more successfully oftentimes than the seller was, but that's a bit of an aside. You got a 65 or 70 year old seller who still uses a lot of paper and thinks you know, everything needs to be done in person and they were generally the challenge. The buyers were prepared before. They're even more prepared now. But you had sellers that were really, really struggling with the idea that somebody could operate their practice in general, let alone somebody who's not even in the same state. But they've actually started to open up on this subject where they're seeing, you know what? It turns out that you know this can be done somewhat remotely, to your point. In fact, when you really start digging into it, I mean, you know as well as I do, you could say you need a local presence, but when you really dig into it with the seller and say, you know, how often do you really sit down face to face with your clients on average? Is it 10 times per year? And they say, well, no, it's usually like once, maybe twice for the needy ones. <laughs> you say, okay, well, how many just random drop ins do you get? Mm -hmm. I mean, the answer is usually, well, none at this point. Like clients are pretty well trained. So, like, well, okay, so why do we need a local presence? Do you really need to know like the, the local haunts and eateries? It doesn't hurt. But so it's the sellers, interestingly enough, that have been the bigger challenge, but they're opening up to it slowly but surely. There is a lot more external financing in the market now than ever before. And I don't think that's, you know, banner news. People have seen the industry lenders popping up. They do more advertising and webinars. But what I think is actually noteworthy is the unreasonable sellers, which you can probably know 
every seller is unreasonable on something. And someday when we sell our respective practices, you know, it'd be our turn to be unreasonable. But when there was all seller financing, i.e. they got paid out of cash flow, there was no real governor on these deals. Like as long as you as a buyer said yes, then sky is the limit. Now, when you have banks involved, broker dealers involved, other external sources putting in money, all of a sudden, you know, the seller with their unreasonable expectations has to sometimes come back down to reality. And you're also getting buyers, not as you know many of them as we'd like to see, but that are they're more educated on valuation. They don't overpay for bad practices like they used to. I hate to say it, but there were a lot of fixer-uppers that got sold based on their fixed-up price, but they weren't fixed up. Even though there are 72 buyers for every seller, you can imagine, put yourself in the seller's shoes someday when you get there. There really aren't 72 qualified, capable people like we talked about. And you're not even looking for 72 people. All you want, honestly, for most of these sellers, I mean, put private equity back firms to the side, aggregators to the side, you know, firms like yours. All the seller really wants is themselves 20 years ago. That's all they want. I mean, don't get me wrong. They want a good price. They'd like it delivered, of course, you know, in a duffel bag full of cash. But (laughs) putting those things, those are number two and three on the list. Number one is always the fit. And the few times where I've seen the fit shift be like number two or three on the priority, priority list, they actually tend to end up getting lower values. When you put your fit as the focus, I mean, I've seen you do it in deals. When you know the seller has their client's best interest at heart, it gives you the warm and fuzzies, makes you feel better about buying that practice, knowing that you've got their support. And if you've got their support, you're probably going to have the clients. If you have the clients, you're probably going to have the assets and revenue. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. And again, thanks to uh, all of our past podcast uh, guests and uh, amazing job by my edit crew, Mr. Joe Greco. Thank you for your editing. Um, And I wanted to take a moment to wish everyone uh, an amazing holiday season, a happy new year, uh, and a blessed, uh, fruitful, healthy, and happy 2023. Thanks again. uh, And thanks for joining another episode of Quantum Growth for Financial Advisors. See you next year. Welcome to the Quantum Growth Podcast, empowering financial advisors to build practices for the 21st century by providing insights and interviews on leadership, strategy, and practice management. Now here's your host, Barron's Hall of Fame advisor, Jonathan Cutton.